Welcome to the May 28, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we will review a report on the use of hydroxyurea as an alternative to transfusion therapy for the prevention of recurrent strokes in patients with sickle cell anemia. Learn more about why some erythroblasts continue to produce hemoglobin F in adults, and review a study that explores cancer outcomes in patients with short telomere syndromes. Our first topic is a letter entitled, Initiating Adjunct Low-Dose Hydroxyurea Therapy for Stroke Prevention in Children with Sickle Cell Anemia During the COVID-19 Pandemic from Michael Debon, the director of the Vanderbilt Meharry Center for Excellence in Sickle Cell Disease. In the letter, Dr. Debon warns that the COVID-19 pandemic represents an unprecedented risk to the blood supply in the U.S. Since children with sickle cell anemia, SCA, and a history of strokes are typically treated with chronic transfusion therapy, any reduction in access to transfusions will put these patients at high risk of recurrent stroke. In fact, Previous studies conducted in low-resource settings showed that children with SCA and a history of strokes who did not receive regular blood transfusions had an overt stroke recurrence rate of 29 per 100 person years, with at least 50% of children having acute stroke recurrence in less than two years. In contrast, initiation of chronic transfusion in these patients reduces the rate of recurrent strokes by about 90%. With the onset of the global pandemic, healthcare resources around the world, including blood products, have been rapidly depleted and reoriented, prompting providers and healthcare systems to consider and adopt more innovative and proactive approaches to patients with chronic diseases, such as SCA. Dr. Debon notes that in previous situations in Jamaica and Sub-Saharan Africa, where the blood supply was uncertain, Stroke prevention studies have demonstrated the benefits of oral hydroxyurea therapy. Given the potential unpredictability of the blood supply during the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Debon explores in detail the value of starting hydroxyurea for SEA patients at high risk for stroke before the blood supply becomes severely disrupted. First, low-dose hydroxyurea, 10 mg per kilogram per day, has been shown to induce hemoglobin F in SCA patients and is one of the oldest, safest, most cost-effective, and widely studied disease-modifying drugs. Despite concerns of myelosuppression, leukemogenesis, and teratogenesis, hydroxyurea is FDA-approved for children with homozygous SCA beginning as early as two years of age. Additionally, there is evidence of neuroprotective effect Several studies have now reported the benefit of hydroxyurea therapy as an alternative to regular blood transfusion therapy for secondary stroke prevention, and it is now believed that hydroxyurea has been conclusively shown to be significantly better than no treatment and almost as effective as transfusion therapy. Additionally, hydroxyurea has been studied in children with SCA and abnormal transcranial Doppler studies, and in the TWITCH trial, was shown to be vastly superior to no treatment in the reduction of primary stroke. However, the beneficial effects of hydroxyurea in these patients is not immediate and likely requires 8 to 12 weeks to take effect. 
The author argues that with the likelihood of ongoing blood product shortages and interruptions due to the pandemic, the immediate initiation of low- and fixed-dose hydroxyurea therapy for children relying on blood transfusion for primary or secondary stroke prevention is a viable and practical solution. For those children already receiving regular blood therapy for primary and secondary stroke prevention, three advantages emerge when immediately implementing low-dose hydroxyurea. First, low-dose hydroxyurea has a negligible risk for myelosuppression, so routine laboratory surveillance is not necessary, although assessment of potential pregnancy should be monitored. Second, starting the low-dose hydroxyurea therapy will decrease the lag time before the clinical benefits of hydroxyurea are seen. And lastly, as noted, the data suggests that low-dose hydroxyurea therapy decreases the expected incidence rate of acute vaso-occlusive pain events in both children and adults. Disadvantages to beginning the low-dose therapy are minor and include primarily the time needed to explain the risks and benefits as well as the inconvenience of obtaining the medication. It is critically important to consider the risk a delay may cause when sudden blood supply shortages are likely. Since the clinical benefits of the hydroxyurea treatment are slow to take effect, delaying treatment any further could have grievous consequences if not started before the blood supply becomes unstable. Therefore, due to the time-sensitive nature of the decision to start hydroxyurea and the unpredictability of resources in the time of pandemic, a proactive approach to treating these patients is necessary and prudent. In conclusion, the article makes a strong case that prompt initiation of hydroxyurea therapy alongside blood transfusions will allow safer interruption of transfusions should blood supplies be depleted and guarantee a measure of neuroprotection in children with SCA during this global healthcare emergency. Next, we will discuss why a small proportion of red cells continue to produce a fetal hemoglobin in adult life. The blood article entitled, Understanding Heterogeneity of Fetal Hemoglobin Induction Through Comparative Analysis of F and A Erythroblasts, authored by Kandros and colleagues from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, explores this question and rules out some of the more favored previous hypotheses. In the past, Studies of erythropoiesis and globin gene expression have played a central role in a model to establish the principles by which mammalian genes are switched on and off during development and differentiation. In addition, the molecular basis of our understanding of human disease has long been founded in how gene expression is perturbed in the hemoglobinopathies. A key question has been to understand the molecular and cellular basis of the normal switch between genes encoding the fetal form of hemoglobin, or hemoglobin F, and those encoding adult globin, or hemoglobin A. Human hemoglobins are encoded by independent loci. The alpha globin locus includes the two alpha globin genes, and the beta globin locus includes two gamma globin genes, which are expressed in fetal life linked to the beta-globin gene that is normally expressed after birth. Each locus is regulated by distal enhancers. Research has focused on the developmental switch from gamma to beta-globin expression for its inherent biological interest, but also because preventing or reversing the developmental switch from fetal to adult hemoglobin is an important therapeutic approach to ameliorate the two major hemoglobinopathies, beta-thalassemia 
and sickle cell disease, since higher levels of hemoglobin F are associated with significant reduction in symptoms. Early clues about the mechanism of gamma to beta hemoglobin switch came from studies focused on understanding the natural mutations in which this was either fully or partially incomplete, causing a disorder termed hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin, or HPFH. These mutations typically involve deletions, insertions, or point mutations within the beta-globin cluster itself. Individuals affected have consistently raised levels greater than 1% of HPF, and individuals who co-inherit one or more forms of HPFH with beta-thalassemia or sickle cell disease are usually only mildly affected. However, while individuals with HPFH were found to have very high levels of HPF in all or most erythrocytes as expected, studies using either immunofluorescence or flow-based assays showed that normal individuals also have a small amount, usually less than 1% of HPF, but that it was unevenly distributed among the erythroblasts of any individual. The small number of cells that contained the hemoglobin F were termed F-cells, while non-F-hemoglobin-containing cells were termed A-cells. Levels of HBF and the numbers of F-cells in normal adults vary significantly, greater than 20-fold, according to surveys of blood donors. Twin studies also show that levels of HBF and F-cells have very high heritability. The continuous distribution of HBF and F-cells suggested this variation may be controlled by multiple genes and that these are complex traits. Researchers identified three loci that explain up to 50% of genetic inheritance of HBF and F-cells by investigating candidate genes, performing family studies, and via genome-wide association. These loci include the beta-globin locus itself, the BCL11A gene, and the HBS1L Mib locus. Other loci may influence the levels of HBF and F-cells as well. Kandros et al. sought to explore why individual cells with identical genotypes and identical combinations of GWAS trait loci express different levels of HBF and numbers of F-cells. While acknowledging the identical genetic background, they determined any explanation is likely to involve a probabilistic process in differentiation or gene expression influenced by the known genetic traits. Four explanations were considered. The first is the persistence of fetal-like stem or progenitor cells in adults. However, this seems unlikely, since adult F-cells are considerably smaller than bona fide fetal progenitor cells and are no more likely to express the fetal I antigen on their surface than A-cells. A second explanation is that a small proportion of adult erythroid progenitors exist in a fetal-like transcriptional epigenetic state. A third explanation is the HBF heterogeneity is caused by small probabilistic changes in gene expression involving one or more of the known HBF regulators. Finally, the F-cell phenomenon could be explained by alteration in the kinetics of erythroid maturation with premature release of erythroid progenitors that synthesize more HBF than later progenitors. The amount of HBF and the levels of F-cells should be explicable in terms of the known genetic factors, whichever explanation is correct. To conduct their study, Kandros and colleagues developed protocols to purify and compare F-cells and A-cells that preserved RNA and protein for analysis. Transcriptional and proteomic profiling of these cells 
demonstrated very few differences between F and A cells at the RNA level, or protein either under baseline conditions or following treatment with HBF inducers such as hydroxyurea. Surprisingly, only the gamma globin genes and none of the known regulator genes were differentially expressed at the RNA or protein levels. In particular, there was no evidence that the F cells had reverted to a fetal state. Overall, the analysis shows that F erythroblasts are not significantly different from non-HBF expressing cells in any individual, and that the primary differences likely occur at the transcriptional level at the gamma globin locus. Future imaging and chromatin configuration studies are planned that will better characterize F cells at the epigenetic and transcriptional level under different conditions. Now for a review of the report published in Blood entitled Cancer Spectrum and Outcomes in the Mendelian Short Telomere Syndromes by Schratz and colleagues from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. It is well established that short telomere length is genetically determined, but may also be acquired with aging. While short telomere length has been associated with increased cancer risk in some models, it has been protective or tumor suppressive in others. Germline mutations in telomerase and other telomere maintenance genes manifest in humans in a spectrum of short telomere syndromes. The most notable of these syndromes are the premature aging syndromes. Patients present as infants or young adults with degenerative phenotypes in high turnover tissues resulting in immunodeficiency, aplastic anemia, and gastrointestinal disease. Children may also show, in rare cases, features of dyskeratosis congenita, a disorder classically defined by a triad of mucocutaneous findings, oral leukoplakia, nail dystrophy, and skin hyperpigmentation. However, the majority of the patients carrying the mutant telomerase and telomere maintenance genes present in adulthood with isolated pulmonary fibrosis, with or without emphysema. In their study, Schratz and colleagues reported on cancer outcomes in 180 patients, median age 50, with germline mutations in telomerase and other telomere maintenance genes evaluated over a 15-year period. Diagnosis was determined by one of the following indicators. 1. Carried a validated pathogenic mutation in telomerase or other telomere maintenance gene. 2. Had short telomere length with classic features of familial short telomere syndrome. Or 3. Had classic short telomere syndrome features with abnormally low telomerase RNA levels. In absence of family history, 79% of patients in the study carried a pathogenic mutation in one of eight telomere-related genes and the remaining individuals had classic short telomere syndrome features with a positive family history and or telomerase RNA insufficiency. Germline mutations in TERT were most common, 42%, followed by TR, RTEL1, DKC1, PARN, TIN2, NAF1, and ZCCHC8. The vast majority, 92%, had no features of dyskeratosis congenita. 12.8% of these patients had a diagnosis of cancer. Solid tumors were rare, only 2.8%, and nearly all were found in young male DKC1 mutation carriers with classic features of dyskeratosis congenita. Myelodysplastic syndrome, MDS, was the most common cancer, 
followed by acute myeloid leukemia, AML, which together accounted for 75% of cancers. The biggest risk factor was being age 50 or older, and most patients reported a family history of pulmonary fibrosis, liver disease, or aplastic anemia at diagnosis. A small subset, 17%, reported a family history of MDS or AML. No single distinct WHO subtype of MDS predominated. Both MDS and AML typically manifested with marrow hypoplasia and monosomy 7, alone or with other aberrations. Unexpectedly, the somatic mutation landscape was indistinct from that of MDS or AML patients without telomere defects. The high rate of hypoplasia and hypoproliferation suggested these neoplasms arise on the continuum with aplastic anemia. Two-thirds of MDS and AML patients died from pulmonary fibrosis and or hepatopulmonary syndrome, with survival rates at one year of 61% and at two years of 39%. In half the cases, MDS and AML patients showed a recurrent peripheral blood pattern of acquired granulocyte-specific telomere shortening by flow-fish analysis. This finding was absent in age-matched mutation carriers who did not have MDS or AML. The study also looked for evidence of clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, CHIP, related mutations in the adult telomere patients without MDS or AML, and found 30% were affected. These same patients also primarily suffered morbidity from pulmonary fibrosis during follow-up. The results of this cohort study show that Mendelian short telomere syndromes are associated with a relatively narrow spectrum of cancer diagnoses, primarily MDS and AML. Young male patients with dyskeratosis congenita had the highest rate of cancer overall at 40% and virtually all of the solid tumors. These patients may benefit from additional screening. Additionally, the findings suggest that short telomere length is sufficient to drive premature age-related clonal hematopoiesis in these inherited disorders. For a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.